0: the Reconstructionist Radio Podcast Network presents The Roots of Reconstruction by Roussas John Rushduni Narrated by Shelby Luke
1: Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction. By Russus John Rushdeny. In lieu of the judgment of God across this nation, I appeal to you to listen, learn, and live as the Holy Spirit guides you in the truth of the Word of God. The words and prompting of fallible men do not hold a candle to the truth of Scripture, and the truth of Scripture will only be words to our ears unless we exhort, establish, and exercise these infallible words in every area of thought and life." Chalcedon Report Number 106, June 1974 In 1923, the lawyer and writer Henry Dwight Sedgwick wrote Pro Vita Monastica, in defense of the contemplative virtues and to a degree a defense of monasticism. Sedgwick did not write as a Christian, but as a concerned modern man fearful of the collapse of our humanistic culture. Something like the ancient monastic groups was needed, without the old faith, to preserve civilization in isolated pockets. In his last sentence, however, his despair at the possibility of a humanistic holiness and reconstruction was openly stated, The sun is set. The moon no longer shines. No stars twinkle in the sky. We must light our candles, or we shall be in utter darkness, unquote. Fifty years later, in 1973, another book with a similar plan appeared, but one which made Sedgwick look optimistic by comparison. Roberto Vaca, in The Coming Dark Age, Garden City, New York, Doubleday, 1973, devotes his last chapter to a proposal that a new kind of monastic order is necessary to conserve civilization from the collapse just ahead. Quote, The New Monks, unquote but have to preserve and transmit scientific knowledge in order to make rebuilding possible someday. Things, rather than values, are to be conserved. Tools, implements, motor generators, and things of a like character. For Vaca, hope is not great, but, quote, in certain cases at least, making more information available can bring salvation, unquote. Page 221. Refuges, imagined by Sedgwick and Vaca are very much like the world they see near ruin. The humanistic sinner carries his sin with him into his retreat and there is no reason to suppose that his retreat will be any less disastrous than the culture he flees from. The problem, of course, is that the disaster is within modern man and he is determined to project it onto the world around him. Because humanistic man is sick, he is determined that the whole world must sicken and die with him. As a result, he cries doom and disaster wherever he turns. Two able books have recently exposed the irrationality of this modern mood. Melvin J. Grayson and Thomas R. Shepard Jr. in the Disaster Lobby, Prophets of Ecological Doom and Other Absurdities, Chicago Foley Publishing Company, 1973, and John Maddox and the Doomsday Syndrome, New York McGraw-Hill, 1973. Behind this urge to condemn man as the polluter and destroyer is a radical hatred of man, a self-hatred, and a will to death. Modern man finds it difficult to say almost anything too bad about himself. Almost. He will not call himself a sinner against God. The pride of modern man is in his supposed wisdom in seeing all the evils in the world around him. The humanistic doctrine of holiness is one in which the more a man exposes the real or imagined sins of the state, the establishment, the left or the right, and of other men, the greater his status. Since the days of Theodore Roosevelt, quote, the muckraker, unquote, has been the virtuous man for humanist, and men as stupid as Lincoln Steffens became heroes because they acquired a skill in denunciation, just as in films and fiction, each new work must outshock the old, so in scandals, charges, and in crime, the urge to surpass previous horrors is in evidence. revolutionary groups change their strategies regularly not to outfox the police, but to increase their shock value. Part of this shock requires an intensifying of destruction. Thus, the predictions of the modern humanist are self-fulfilling prophecies. Destruction is predicted, and everything is then done to heighten chaos, ruin, and anarchy. As men once emulated one another in righteousness and holiness... In the new mood, men emulate one another in anarchism and destruction. I recall vividly the admiration in the voice of a student I overheard in the 1960s, hearing of a radically immoral and anarchistic act. He glowingly declared, quote, Far out, man. Unquote. Modern man is suicidal, and his goal is death. The world, however, is vastly bigger than modern man. A new culture is in process of formation, neither statist nor humanist nor church-oriented. In many cases, Christians are leaving their impotent churches, sometimes to build new ones, often to find, in associations, fellowships, and in their homes, the new foundations for a renewed Christendom. An old expression speaks of, quote, the country of the soul, unquote. Modern man's soul is homeless and has only death ahead of it. Those who have the assurance that in Christ they have a citizenship in heaven and a lordship over the world have a very different quote, country of the soul unquote, than the lonely soul who denies all tithes and asserts his existential isolation. The quote, country of the soul unquote, of modern man has become limited to the dimensions of his own inner being. And this he finds to be not an empire, but a hell. He cannot look at the world and sing, as does the Christian, quote, this is my father's world, unquote. It is for him a dead, cold, and alien world. And his constant theme is of alienation and isolation. In the early church, we find a new system of dating appeared early. We have it today in A.D., in the year of our Lord. When the mortar Polycarp was burned at Smyrna on Caesar's Festival, February 23, 155, the Church recorded it, quote, in the consulship of Stadius Quadratus, but in the reign of the Eternal King, unquote. This phrase occurs often, quote, in the reign of the Eternal King, unquote. It expressed the confidence of the early Christians in victory over Caesar because the eternal king ruled the country of their soul and the universe. They knew that in time they would triumph. In whose reign are you living? Chalcedon Report, number 107, July, 1974. Among the cultural motives which dominated Western man when After 1660, the structure of Western civilization began to shift from a Christian to a humanistic basis was experience. A new idea began to emerge, the truth of experience, which was to supplant progressively the idea of objective and absolute truth. In the church, this meant experiential religion, priority given to experience rather than to the facts of doctrine, priority to the individual and his experience rather than to God. A modern evangelical has summed it up thus, The most important thing in the world is to experience Christ as your Savior. Clearly, any experience cannot be more important than, for example, the Incarnation. Not even for me can it be more important without turning a cosmic religion into an egocentric concern. However wonderful or necessary my salvation may be, it cannot take priority over God and His total purpose even in my own mind without sin. To cite another example in speaking a few years ago of the consequences of inflation, I cited the German monetary collapse of 1923 as one possible consequence. One man immediately objected, quote, That's impossible. The German experience cannot be the American experience because the Germans believed in gold and distrusted paper. Americans do not believe in gold, and there can, therefore, be no bad results with our currency." In such thinking, the truth of experience has replaced objective reality. To cite still another example, last night an outstanding and superior Christian layman told me of a sermon he heard preached by an evangelical pastor. Experience was made so basic that the experience of love made the objective facts of a marriage license and ceremony unnecessary and superficial. This is not a new attitude. The stress on experience has made the church, modernist and evangelical alike, antinomian, anti-law. With this stress on experience rather than God and His law word, it should not surprise us that mass evangelism, by its own statistics, leaves 95% of its supposed converts unchanged in their lives. Its audiences are largely experience-mongers. This stress on experience has a relative motive, a stress on quantity, on numbers. Experience is a visible thing, so is quantity. I have often heard it said that criticism of this or that mass evangelist is wrong. Quote, Think of the numbers of people he reaches. Unquote. Such people assess any and all things by the same quantitative approach. How many people read him? How many people hear him? How much press does he get? By their logic, these people should have been pro-Hitler and pro-Stalin, and today should be pro-Mao and pro brezhnev To stress quantity, numbers is evidence of radical humanism and of stupidity as well. If our faith is in man, it will show. Our criteria will be how much appeal does one have with man? For the Orthodox Christian, the criterion of judgment is faithfulness to God. One consequence of this emphasis on quantity and experience has been the debasement of the pulpit. From 1660 to the present, the caliber of preaching has declined in content and the emphasis has shifted from solid thought to popular appeal and entertainment. With a few exceptions, the larger the church, the weaker the content of the preaching. In politics, the consequence has been crowd-pleasing of the most blatant sort. Justice has come to mean giving the most handouts to the most people by robbing those who are the targets of envy. The logic of the emphasis on experience and quantity makes socialism or communism the natural and inevitable faith of a culture which stresses their centrality. Basic to this stress on experience in quantity or numbers is relativism. All things are made relative to man, to mass man. Truth is made relative to man, not to God. Things are important if man so regards them, not because God has established a priority. Because all things are made relative to man and man's experience, things are unimportant unless they command masses of men. God's warning against despising, quote, the day of small things, unquote, in example, small beginnings, Zechariah 4.10, is regularly despised by modern fools. They see a thing as good only as mass man takes to it, not because it is good in terms of God and His Word. The implications of all this is that the supreme good is man, and the more men who approve of something and experience it favorably, the closer that thing or cause is to the supreme good. The logic of total democracy is that man is the ultimate standard, law, and good, and the more men there are who approve of anything, the better it must be. Humanistic culture is collapsing, however and its elite now have turned on man. The fewer there are who appreciate an avant-garde art form, the better it must be. If the crowd man takes to it, the art form is dropped for another. The fewer people there are who go to a resort, the better it is. And however bad the food and beds, and however flea-ridden that inn is, quaint, unquote, and quote, unspoiled. Unquote. The humanistic mass man stupidly follows the crowd, and the crowd is his standard of judgment. The humanistic elitist avoids the crowd and stupidly assumes that what the crowd ignores must be good. His standard, as against mass man's judgment, is private judgment and is humanism still. God's truth is not in the picture for either as they blindly stumble towards the collapse of their culture. I may believe without any doubt that the lights will go on when I flip the switch, but the lights only go on when all is well with the power. Modern man assumes that he is the power plant. Reality, however, is not a product of man's faith in himself. Thank you for joining me this week in the reading of Roots of Reconstruction of This is John Rushman. Lord willing, we will be reading again next week. Until then, may God bless your endeavors as you serve the one and only King Jesus.
2: It was the blood of Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. The love he us by his pain that very price. It was there at Calvary's tree, where he died for you and me.